morning and welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club where you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then engage in dialogue with them in a special discussion group we've set up on LinkedIn. This year, we are focusing on the topic of employee engagement on Bookends, and my guest today is Keith Ayers, who has written the book, Engagement is Not Enough. Following today's interview, you are invited to engage Keith in conversation on LinkedIn. Just log in to LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. Here you can pose questions and discuss employee engagement issues with your peers and dialogue with Keith Ayers and other authors who are also members of this group. Here you also find a link to a recording of today's interviews, uh, interview as well as previous interviews. Invite your friends to join the group and listen and discuss. I'm Susan Stamm, and I'm pleased to welcome Keith Ayers to Bookends today. Keith is the president of Integro Leadership Institute, a leadership consulting group based in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Originally from Australia, Keith joined Integro as a consultant in 1977 and took over ownership of the organization in 1982. <clears throat> Demand for his programs and expertise in the United States led to him moving to Pennsylvania in August of 2001. The U.S. division of Integro now has over 60 certified associates across North America. Keith's first career was a navigator in the Royal Australian Air Force, which included a, a term of active duty in Vietnam. His expertise in working with CEOs and senior executive teams to help them create high-performance culture, one that is based on a high level of trust and personal responsibility. Keith has worked with executive teams in Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, China, and the U.S., and has also been a speaker at conferences in Germany, Finland, the U.K., and throughout North America. A long-held view that training events do not produce business results led Keith to author the Leadership Development Process and the Senior Team Alignment Process. These, inter these integrated processes include before and after measurement and application projects that help executive teams and managers take their culture head-on and get employees committed to achieving outstanding results. Keith, of course, is the author of Engagement is Not Enough, You Need Passion employees to achieve your dream, which is published by Advantage in October 2006. To get a copy of Keith's book, I encourage you to go to the website, which is www.engagementisnotenough.com. Welcome, Keith Ayers, to Bookends. Thanks, Susan. It's great to be here. Uh, Keith, it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful to have you here today. We've uh, known and, and have had the opportunity to uh, consider you a colleague of ours for many, many years. And um, I really enjoyed your book. And, and in the inter thank, uh, thank you for writing it. In your introduction, you, you discuss what you call a failure of leadership. Uh, when it comes to employee engagement, which I, I believe sets a real context for this work. Um, I was wondering if you could share some of your observations about uh, leaders that have concerned you, um, that you've observed through, through your work. Well, uh, the reason I, I make that statement about failure of leadership is that uh, I've been following the Gallup engagement research uh, since 1996, and it started before then. So for over 15 years, uh, organizations have been measuring engagement. We've been measuring the engagement of the American workforce. Uh, and it hasn't improved uh, more than about 2% uh, over that time. And, and uh, to me, there's a, there's a failure in leadership there uh, in that we have been addressing this issue of employee engagement 
for so long. We know that it has an impact on uh, organisational performance and, and the bottom line, uh, and, and yet leaders haven't been able to have any significant impact on it overall. And, um, and I think the, the real issue is that uh, leaders are looking in the wrong place uh, for the answer to increasing engagement. Uh, they've looked to things like incentive plans, um, benefit plans, uh, improved working conditions, and, and looking outside for things, if you like. And it reminds me of Jim Collins' um, discussion about level five leadership. You know, the, the level five leadership um, looks out the window at the employees uh, when things are going great. In other words, he gives credit to the employee and looks in the mirror when things are going wrong. And, and I think leaders need to look in the mirror uh, at, at what is causing engagement not to increase uh, yeah. because it's uh, leadership behaviour that has the most significant impact on employee engagement. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you, you, you talk about what you call the whole person concept in your book. And... Um, uh, as a way for us to, to really understand behavior and performance and engagement on the team. Can you tell us about this model and describe uh, its elements for us? Yeah, sure. I think this is one of the, the, the best, simplest models uh, for helping us understand the mysteries of human behavior uh, or human beings. And uh, I can't take credit for the model. It was created by uh, one of Integra's founders, Dr. Ralph Colby, who I talk about quite a bit in the book. And, um, but in essence, um, it's, it's saying that um, the whole person that is you uh, goes with you no matter where you are. Uh, or as I, I think I said it in the book, and no matter where you go, there you are, all of you. You can't leave part of yourself at home. Um, and, and what that means for organizations is when they hire people, they're hiring the whole person. Right? Uh, and yet they often act as if the only part of the person they want at work is their behavior and they want specific behavior from the person and so they try to use all different kinds of methods techniques motivations incentives whatever to get people to behave the way they want them to um, and, and ignoring the other aspects of the person that uh, you really need to understand if you're going to understand their behavior so, uh, in essence, what the model says is there's four aspects to a person. And the first is behavior. That's the most obvious part. And, uh, and in fact, that uh, people are very much like an iceberg, uh, that behavior is the tip of the iceberg. And the other three aspects are below the waterline. Other people can't see them, but that's what's driving behavior is what's going underneath the waterline. And so just below the surface uh, is the thinking-feeling aspect. And, and we've got thinking and feeling combined because, in a sense, they're inseparable. Uh, if, you, if you think about it, uh, there are times when you uh, have uh, a feeling, a strong feeling towards someone. You might get angry with someone, mm -hmm. right? And, and initially you get all wound up in the, in the anger and, and you can uh, feel the emotion. Um, but at some point in time, maybe after you've cooled down a little bit, you'll start thinking about why you got so angry or thinking to justify your anger and why you should have got angry with this person, etc. And, and, so, and, and likewise, you might be thinking something about someone and, and then feel, oh, I really shouldn't think that way about this person. And, and that's why I say thinking and feeling are so closely connected, uh, inseparable, that we have them at the one level underneath the waterline. But it's also that everything I do uh, in my behavior 
uh, I do because I either think I should do it uh, or I do it because I feel like doing it. Mm. So thinking and feeling most directly drive behavior. Virtually every action uh, is caused by me thinking I should do that or just by me feeling like I want to do that or just instinctively doing it. And obviously instinct would be feeling driven more so than thinking driven. If we go down deeper in the iceberg, we have beliefs and values. And, and um, beliefs, values are beliefs. It's something I really value, it's really important to me, it's because I believe it's important. Mm -hmm. uh, if I don't value something highly, it's because I don't believe it's important. And, um, and beliefs and values uh, have a strong impact on thinking and feeling. Obviously, if something's really important to you, uh, then you feel strongly about it, you think about it a lot, and then it'll go through, through into your behavior, and you'll be doing something in relation to that all the time. Right? And something that's not important to you, it's, it, you don't believe in it, then it doesn't occupy your thinking, you don't have feelings about it, and, and it doesn't, therefore, reflect in your behavior. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the difference between a belief and a thought uh, the, the simplest way I, I can see it is that a belief is a thought that became a fact. Mm. When, when I heard something, when someone told me something, or when I read it somewhere, or I, um, in thinking about things, I decided that this is reality for me. This is true. And once I believe it's true, uh, and, and it's absolute, and there's no question about it, it becomes a belief. Mm -hmm. right? Before that, it was just a series of thoughts uh, running around in my head. And so uh, beliefs and values are certainly deeper down and have a, a, a strong influence on thinking, feeling, and behavior. But at the bottom of the iceberg, the fourth aspect is our needs. And I'm really talking about instinctive needs here. Um, you could, in fact, put the whole of Maslow's hierarchy in this one area. Mm -hmm. uh, and different people at different levels of need will be driven by different needs. Uh, but needs have an impact on beliefs and values. And, and they have an impact on thinking and feeling and therefore ultimately on behavior. But the, the, the difference between needs is that I, I'm not necessarily thinking about it. You know, if you think about it, if, if you're familiar with um, the DISC model, and if you know uh, Susan, you may well be, um, or, or Myers-Briggs or any of those kinds of tools uh, that describe different kinds of people or different behavioral styles, different people have different needs uh, down here at the bottom of the iceberg. Some people have an outstanding need to achieve results. They're really driven to achieve results. Now, they don't um, consciously sit around and think about um, having a need to achieve. They just get out there and do it. They instinctively move in the direction of setting goals, planning to achieve them, and then following through on achieving them. Uh, that's what they do, whether they're at work or at home or on vacation. They've always got something they want to achieve that day. Uh, whereas other people have a, a very low need for that. And, and so their needs are driving them instinctively in another direction. For example, someone who has a very high need to be accepted by others or to be liked by others. They don't consciously go around thinking about what can I do to get people to like me. They just instinctively smile and they're friendly and they're open and they're warm. Uh, they're behaving instinctively in a way that will attract people to wanting to like them. All right, so... So that's really the essence of, of the whole person concept is that we can simplify, if you like, the complexity of a human being into these four aspects and say uh, we have needs at the bottom which uh, drive us instinctively, um, which also impact on our values and beliefs, but not necessarily 
uh, and, and then I'll come back to that point in a moment, uh, and, and needs and values and beliefs drive our thinking and feeling, which ultimately goes through into our behaviour. And um, the point I want to come back to is that I, I see values and needs as being the two human motivators, which drive the thinking and feeling. We are always doing something we believe we should do, uh, or we're doing it because it satisfies us, it meets our needs. Mm -hmm. So we're operating either as needs-driven or as values-driven all the time. Now, sometimes needs and values are um, in harmony with each other, that um, I believe I should be doing this, and I really like doing this. And that's ultimately what we would really like in the workplace, is for people to be really passionate about what they do, not just because it's satisfying, but because they really believe in what they're doing too, and they can see the difference that it's making. But there are times when needs and values come into conflict. And if you're a parent, you know that there's times when there's certain things you need to do for your children. Now, you've got to put some time away to do this, whereas you might actually really prefer to do something else at that point in time. Um, but we tend to put our own needs aside there and go with what we know is the right thing to do, what we believe we should be doing. Uh, and ultimately, we get satisfaction out of that too. Yeah. And so that's the, the thing that I like about the iceberg model. Uh, one is it helps to clarify that uh, what we do as human beings is either needs-driven or values-driven. And, and, and both, are, uh, both can be very uh, good, valuable, helpful, uh, effective in the workplace, mm-hmm. but there are times when being needs-driven uh, gets in the road of doing the right thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the other thing I like about the model is that it helps people understand that the way to get your needs met is through your behavior. Mm-hmm. And this sort of leads into another model that I think uh, we, we're going to talk about a little bit later, yeah. is about taking responsibility. And if, if I sit around thinking, Oh, gee, I wish someone would satisfy my needs for me, and I'm not sitting here, and I've got all these needs that aren't being met, and no one's doing anything for me. All right? Well, what's going to happen? Um, probably not much, because not much does happen until we do something about getting our needs met. You know, if you want affection from somebody just sitting and waiting for it, it usually doesn't work. Maybe what we need to do is to show affection to someone else uh, who is likely to return that affection. And uh, so, again, it's through our behavior that we get our needs met. Yes. I, I also uh, I, I love the, this model, Keith, and I also think that it's uh, probably a, a powerful um, image to use in, in coaching situations to help managers to understand that you never truly can understand what's going on inside another person when you're just looking at their behavior. Right. And there's a whole lot more there that you can explore. And that's one of the things that I use the uh, whole person concept for is a, as a, a prior to actually uh, giving people feedback from uh, a disc profile or, or any kind of profile for that matter, uh, is to refer back to the iceberg and say, now let's look at what aspects of you we're measuring with this particular profile. Mm-hmm. And in the case of DISC, although we're measuring attributes that are below the surface, they're, they're primarily needs-driven attributes. Um, and the profile will describe how you behave. Right? So we're, we're saying that this profile focuses more on the tip of the iceberg and the base of the iceberg. It doesn't focus so much on needs and values and beliefs, rather, uh, or the thinking feeling level. Mm-hmm. You introduce uh, the topic of accountability with a, I thought it was a really great story about your garage door. 
at your home. Would you uh, share the story uh, with us before introducing your model on personal responsibility? Yeah, yeah. Um, we were in a rented house at the time. We'd only been in, in uh, the States probably uh, three or four months and uh, came home from work and pressed the button in my car for the garage door to open and, and um, I saw the door jerk uh, and shake and then stop. So I tried it again and it jerked and shook again. And um, and I realized that the cleaners had been in that day. This was a, a, a cleaning company was contracted by the owners of the house that we were renting. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um went inside and checked in the garage, and sure enough, they'd manually locked the door from the inside. <gasps> and and so um, the door hadn't been able to open using the motor. And um, so I, I spoke to the cleaner about it, and uh, she denied that any of her team would have done that and uh, they, they understand garage doors there's no way they would have done that no responsibility well it turned out um, a month or so later uh, the same thing happened uh, but unfortunately the door had been weakened somewhat by the previous occurrence and, and uh, when I hit the button and the door jerked uh, it also then the door twisted and uh, the door was actually ruined And and this time, of course, I I needed to get some compensation because the landlord wasn't going to pay for it. (laughs) Um, And um, so we ended up having to cough up for a door because uh, the cleaning company absolutely refused to take any responsibility. And and short of, you know, taking them to court and and, uh, all that kind of stuff, um, which I didn't do. Uh, But, of course, they were no longer our cleaners after that. (laughs) And and that's, you know, it's, it's a personal peeve of mine, if you like, um, and I'm sure a lot of us share that. Um, I don't know if you use the word peeve, but mm-hmm. um, you know that, that when someone does something that causes damage and then won't take responsibility, or when someone doesn't do their job and won't take responsibility for it, uh, they knew what to do, they didn't do it, and now they're coming up with all these excuses and blame. And, and the uh, the personal responsibility model that um, I describe uh, in Chapter 3 uh, is, is very insightful in terms of understanding that um, why it is that people uh, avoid responsibility and, uh, and what we can do to help people be responsible, be accountable. And, and uh, it's a fairly complex model to try to explain in a in a, in a one-way conversation, in a sense. Um, but uh, the, the, basically it looks at whether people are other-directed or self-directed, whether people see themselves as having any control over their lives or not. And um, other-directed people don't believe they have any control over their lives, and so they, they believe that they have to do what they're told. And, and, and so um, they either comply or rebel when, when they're asked to do something, they don't even have to be told to do something. If they're asked to do something, they feel it's like a, an order or a command um, and, um, and that, because it's coming from someone in authority uh, in their mind. And, and if they comply, they'll be resentful about having to do something they didn't really want to do or it wasn't their job. Uh, and if they tend more towards being rebellious, then they just rebel against it and refuse to do it, do the opposite of what you've asked them to do. And um, and the bottom line is that uh, people who are other-directed uh, can't accept responsibility because they don't see themselves as having any choice or having any say. Um, I'm just being told what to do. And so they they uh, spend a lot of time feeling like victims and feeling sorry for themselves. And they also spend quite a bit of time trying to get even 
uh, getting revenge against the authority, uh, whether that's the manager, the boss, or the, um, the parent, or mm-hmm. uh, whatever aspect of life we're in. And so other directed people, in essence, have uh, a basic belief about life is that um, I have to do what, what other people tell me to do. I have no control. I can't make my own decisions. And, um, and then the self-directed person is a person who believes they have total control over their life. Uh, I choose what I do. Uh, everything is a choice. And so uh, when they're asked to do something, they either agree with it or they disagree with it. And if they disagree, they'll have some logical reasons as to why they don't think they should do it. Um, and so they accept the consequences of their actions and decisions, and therefore they are responsible. They see themselves as being responsible, and they behave in an accountable way. And, um, and when I ask um, managers prior to sharing uh, this model with any group, uh, I always ask, what kinds of people do you need in your organization in order to be successful? And then I collect their, the words that they throw out at me and build up a flip chart of the kinds of people you need. And then when I've been through this model, I come back and say, now, are these people that you say you need, are they other directed or self-directed? <laughs> and every word on the flip chart every time uh, is a self-directed word. Nobody wants other directed people. And yet, we seem to have so many other directed people out there in the work world uh, and in the world generally. Uh, people who feel like victims uh, or feel like they have no control and uh, feel resentful and, uh, and, and some being rebellious and getting revenge and getting even. Mm-hmm. And, and this ties back to engagement because I think one of the most common ways in which people get even with the company uh, or their manager is to hold back on giving their best. Right. I don't have to. If they figure out just exactly how much work they have to do to stay out of trouble Mm -hmm. and to keep their jobs. And they do just that and not much more. And so there's there's a, um, you know, people fluctuate between being self-directed and other-directed. I mean, people will be more self-directed when um, they do something well. Of course, they'll take responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. But then as soon as uh, something's gone wrong, uh, if they start making excuses, uh, trying to blame someone else, and or oh, it's not my fault, I did exactly what you told me to do, they've jumped back onto the other directed side. And, and so I think it's a real challenge for yeah. leaders to, to understand that uh, authoritarian behavior, authoritarian leadership creates other directed behavior. Mm-hmm. When we try to force people or control people into doing what we want them to do, um, we, we basically push them down the other directed side of this model. We say, well, you do what I say um, because that's the way it's got to be done. In other words, you've got no choice. And so people will either comply resentfully, you won't let me have any say, you won't give me, let me have any input, uh, or they rebel. They just resist doing it. And, um, and then so we could move people who want to be self-directed, who in essence... Um, have the potential to be self-directed all the time and, and we push them down the other side by using excessive control as leaders. And, and so what we need to learn to do is to create a work environment where people want to and can take responsibility. But that means giving people choices. It means giving people permission to disagree and, and not see disagreement as rebellion. They're seeing it as an opportunity to explore things and maybe come up with better ways of doing things. Yeah. So it's a really powerful model uh, yeah. and, and a very, uh, I think, an essential part of leaders understanding what they need to do to get people to engagement and beyond engagement to 
passion. Yeah, I would suspect that as you go through that opening exercise that you described and, and they uh, are listing the characteristics of employees they want, um, you know, it, it becomes a hard um, lesson for them to take a look at their leadership style and how, how uh, much in alignment it is with what it is that they say is the kind of employee that they really desire to have um, right. in, in cultures where, you know, that are so compliance-oriented, which unfortunately there are many of those. Um, yeah. uh, Peter Block's book, I had interviewed him earlier on this program, he says that a leader's um, uh, biggest um, role in the organization is to confront people with their freedom. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a really powerful way of looking <laughs> at it. Yeah, yeah. So, so just in case there might be someone listening, um, Keith, that that might be a parent, can you tell us? Uh, you talk a little bit about children learning to become self-directed, and you know, those of us that have the chance to, even if we're not parents, maybe we are influencers, influencers of people who might might be. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the story of Trey and um, how children can yeah. become self-directed? Yeah, um, I, I had a um, a lady on the program I was running in. Uh, California um, back in 2003 I think it was and and I was going through uh, this um, personal responsibility model and uh, and I always give examples of children because that's how we all learn to behave in another directed way because as children growing up uh, we have lots of authority figures in our lives our parents, our teachers, our preachers and, and, and just about any adult really uh, tends to behave towards children, uh, or when I grew up anyway, tended to behave towards children in, in an authoritarian way. And, and so we're constantly having to comply or, or, or we're rebelling against the authority. And, and so we all learnt this other directed behavior really well. And I, and, and I talk about it from the perspective that I think really the job of parenting uh, is to help children move from other directed to self-directed as early as we can. Because the sooner they start taking responsibility for their behavior, their actions, and the decisions that they make, uh, the sooner they're going to be happy and feel free uh, and, and, and are going to be able to get on and be the best that they can be. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, some parents seem to think that the control-based authoritarian way is the way to go. Well, anyway, uh, Sarah was, uh, was attending this, um, this program. And, and in fact, at the time, she was pregnant with a second child, and Trey was about four. And uh, Sarah's from Hawaii, and um, uh, just in talking about children and how early we can um, get them to start being more responsible, she said, "I've got to tell you a story about Trey." She said, "Because from when he's been very little, I have always uh, tried to get him to make choices um, rather than me just telling him what to do." And so, for example, if he would um, uh, was resisting going to bed uh, at his bedtime. Um, uh, rather than just uh, order him off to bed, she would say, well, Trey, uh, you've, got, you've got two choices. You can go to bed now, uh, get a really good night's sleep, and then when you get up in the morning to go to kindergarten, you're going to be really fresh and, and have lots of rest, and, and you're going to have a really good time and, and, and play well. And she said that if you stay up longer, I'm going to have to wake you up in the morning, and you know you don't like it when I have to wake you up, and when you go to kindy, you're going to uh, maybe not be so full of energy. And <laughs> So she sort of used to use... Um, mm-hmm. uh, decision-making tools, given decision-making tools, and, and uh, helping him understand the consequences of his choices, um, 
to use the language from the self-directed side of our model. Mm -hmm. And anyway, that was fine, and, and, and it seemed to be working pretty well. And, and not long before she'd come to California to attend this program, she'd been at a playground, and, and uh, Trey was up, up on this climbing apparatus, and he was up, up the top somewhere. And, and she'd called out to him, uh, Trey, come on, we've got to get down there, we've got to go home. And uh, a few minutes later, he hadn't moved. He was still climbing around mm -hmm. there. And so she called him again and said, Trey, come on. And um, and after a few more minutes, when he still wasn't getting down, um, uh, Sarah came up to the climbing apparatus and Trey, you get down here right now. <laughs> and uh, he looked down at her and he said, I don't have to. I've got choices. <laughs> <laughs> so he was sort of well-educated into the idea of having choices, but um, not skilled at using the right time or, or thinking through the consequences. But see, there's a lesson in that, too, for managers uh, dealing with employees who tend to be more other-directed and don't want to take responsibility, mm -hmm. is that we often enable them. Uh, they ask us, what, uh, what do you want me to do? Uh, I'll do this, okay? Mm -hmm. They go and do that and come back. What do you want me to do now? We'll do this. And they keep coming back, they keep coming back, and as long as we keep telling them what to do, they're yeah. um, not thinking about what to do next. Mm -hmm. But if we ask the question, well, what are the options? What's on your plate? What are the things that need to be done? I don't know. Well, why don't you go and find out what things could need to be done uh, that you know, are part of your responsibilities, and then we'll talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so um, using questions to get people to think about the choices that they do have and the consequences of each of those choices and help them learn to make decisions. And that's part of um, you know, uh, our leadership training is to teach managers to ask questions rather than tell people what to do. Yes, yes. It's don't very tell. hard to get them to do it, mm -hmm. even after time and time again of going through a process of, of training. It's, um, it's just so, um, so ingrained in so many people to, to be control-based. Yeah, ingrained, I think, is, is the operative word. It takes a long, long time to change those behaviors. You introduced two leadership styles in the, the relationship to creating responsibility-based culture. Can you tell us a little bit about these, how they work, and the results that we can expect for them to produce? Yeah, um, the whole the whole um, model behind that uh, about creating a responsibility-based culture. I mean, the idea of that was, um, you know, a responsibility-based culture is a work environment where everyone takes responsibility for what they do uh, and and for delivering uh, what's expected of them, uh, for delivering value. And, and, and for that to work, there has to be a really high level of trust uh, in the organization too because obviously if everybody's being responsible, then everybody's trustworthy and we can trust everybody mm -hmm. to deliver uh, what they need to deliver. And, and I had a bit of a challenge using that term responsibility-based culture and, and in an organization, a, a university in the Midwest, that, um, uh, in one division they put 170 managers through our leadership development process and and it was all focused on creating this responsibility-based culture, which got shortened to RBC, and, uh, and then the whole thing got known as RBC, and, um, and it became like another program. Mm -hmm. and, and so I thought, you know what, I don't really want people to get hung up on the jargon. I, I want them to just be focused on what's the outcome we're looking for. And, and so what I've done here is I've, I've um, adapted that model that's in the book to talk more about... Um, what kind of leadership, uh, or what kind of leader are you, as opposed to what kind of culture are you creating? Mm -hmm. 
and looking at the leadership behavior and, and what happens if I use control-based leadership. And uh, a control-based leader basically, um, by controlling people, is communicating um, non-verbally, if not verbally, uh, that I don't trust you. Mm-hmm. I don't trust you to work without me controlling you uh, or without me watching you or without me checking on everything you've done. Right? And, and so it communicates a complete lack of trust. And, and so um, it also then communicates to people that they don't have any choice. And, and so it, it pushes people down the other directed side and we end up with people that are disengaged, uh, other directed if not rebellious. And, uh, and, and the alternative to that uh, is, is trust-based leadership. It's uh, leaders who believe in people and trust them, believes that people are trustworthy. And, you know, I, I don't really think there are too many people working in, in, in normal organisations, in any kind of normal job, who really isn't trustworthy. Now, they may do something from time to time uh, to, um, to question that, for you to question it, mm-hmm. uh, but most people want to do the right thing. Right. Most people take a job with the intent of doing a good job and doing the right thing by the company, doing the right thing by the customer. And, and, and we don't need to create rules for the exceptions. All right? and we need to be aware of the exceptions, but we need to create a system for the majority of people, which is people are trustworthy, so let's trust them. And so the leadership approach is to partner with them. Mm-hmm. This is a word that, 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 um, that um, um, Peter, Peter Block mm-hmm. uh, talks about uh, also, is partnership. You know, that, that we need to partner with employees to create a great organization. It's not um, to control them into creating a great organization, it's to how do we enroll them, enlist them in partnering with us and being part of the team and, and us all working together to achieve greatness. Mm-hmm. And, and when we create that trust-based environment and we partner with people, we, we bring out the best in people and so we end up with people who are engaged and passionate and, and really committed to the organization. That's great. I really like that. Many, many managers may feel that this idea of a responsibility uh, based culture really makes a lot of sense, but um, they find that they work in, a, in an organization that really has a strong authority based culture. You know, how, how would you coach them? Well, I, I think uh, we have to always be aware of uh, what our circle of influence is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who can, who's within my circle of influence that I can influence, and if I'm working in a, um, you know, you know business unit of a large organization, I probably don't have a lot of influence on uh, the corporate office and the CEO and the C-level uh, people who may be somewhere far away anyway. Um, but what I do have influence over is the people uh, who report to me and the people who report to them. I certainly have influence uh, there if I'm in any level of management. Mm-hmm. I also have an, an opportunity to influence my peers and I have an opportunity to influence my manager. All right, so and I can identify maybe there's other people I can influence too, and and so um, and even if my own manager tends to be more authority driven, uh, control based, um, I still have a choice as to whether I'm going to behave in a self-directed way or another directed way. Mm-hmm. Am I going to just comply and rebel and feel like a victim and get even and and be miserable, uh, or am I going to say, okay, um, I choose to be here, mm-hmm. I choose to work for this manager. 
and uh, when I'm asked to do something or told to do something, uh, if it's part of my job and it's fair enough, I'll do it. All right. But if it's something that I don't think's right, uh, well then I'm going to question it. Okay. okay? And uh, as long as I'm prepared to accept the consequences of the outcomes, um, then I can maintain my own personal level of responsibility and accountability. All right. And even in a situation where I have a limited amount of control or limited choices, I still have the choice to be self-directed. Yeah. Right? If I don't like it enough, I can go somewhere else. I always have that choice uh, to leave. Now, the consequences of leaving uh, may not be desirable, and especially in, a, in an environment like now where uh, there's less jobs uh, available, perhaps. Um, and... Um, you know, there's all kinds of considerations we need to take there. But if I de do decide to stay, uh, then I, I need to, dis if I'm, for my own health and my own sanity, I need to choose to stay. Right. And know that I'm choosing and accept the consequences of that choice and just get on with it. Yeah. Stay in the self-directed side. And uh, if, if I do that, I'm, I'm going to be much more impressive uh, to my boss and, and to other people in the organization and people, other departments that I deal with than someone who's miserable and, and playing the victim role all the time okay. and letting them down because they're not taking responsibility. The choosing to be self-directed is the most important thing we can do. In fact, I think it's probably one of the most important decisions in life. Yeah, I certainly agree, and I, I think that a lot of people that have that upline boss that you talked about that really is very controlling, um, when they've made that choice, that they can very respectfully and very diplomatically let the boss know, I am doing what you've told me to do because it's the right thing to do, and I'm choosing to do it. <laughs> um, and and yeah. you know, and, and just continuing to sort of manage up, coach up by. Um, helping them to understand, you know, where their actions are coming from. Their actions are coming from within, um, uh, not with, from the outside. Yes, exactly. You talk about Larry, the president of New Parts, uh, to illustrate the point of that being trustworthy is not enough. Can you tell us a little bit about Larry and then introduce us to your trust model? Yeah, I met Larry at a, an executive briefing in, um, in Philadelphia, and um, he'd come along with three of his senior management team and uh, and uh, this was around the time uh, I was oh no, I don't think I had published the book at that stage and but I was um, talking about uh, creating a, a trust-based responsibility-based culture and I don't remember exactly what the title of the uh, briefing was but that doesn't matter um, after the briefing uh, he called me over to his table introduced me to the three senior managers he brought with him and he said he said, this has been a huge aha moment for me. And I said, why is that? He said, well, when you went through the elements of trust, he said, the light bulbs came on. He said, um, we've, and, it, and he told me the story, which I describe in the book. I won't go into all the detail of that. They've been through some challenges and they had to lay some people off. And, and um, that everyone on his senior management team uh, was very conscientious, um, hardworking, committed to the company. Uh, and, uh, of course, in their own eyes, uh, totally trustworthy, and certainly Larry's eyes. Um, you know, and, and what had prompted his comment about that big aha moment was they had recently got the results of their latest employee survey, and one of the questions was about trust for senior management, and it had gone down, and it was, you know, one of the lowest of all the questions, lowest scores. And 
And, um, and of course, they were very disturbed about that. Uh, and they couldn't understand it. They couldn't understand why people would not trust them uh, when they were, they were so trustworthy. And, and of course, um, the, the, the elements of trust, which, which you've asked me to, to talk about, the trust model, uh, is about the behaviors that build trust. Because it's not uh, trustworthiness that builds trust at all. It's behavior. Uh, people who are untrustworthy know how to build trust. We call them con men or scam artists. I mean, look at Bernie Madoff, for example. Uh, how many people trusted him uh, over such a long period of time, right? And yet underneath it all, the whole time, he was totally untrustworthy. And and so um, that's, that's the big aha that I think most managers need to get. Uh, is that people will not trust you just because you're trustworthy. Mm-hmm. You're all trustworthy. It's, it's, that doesn't mean people will trust you, though. Mm-hmm. And that's where the four behaviors, the four elements of trust are just so powerful and, and, and important. And, uh, and I'll, I'll just run through them quickly. Congruence, uh, saying what you mean, meaning what you say, uh, walking your talk, being honest and ethical. Um, I like to I- I explain congruence through the... Uh, congruent triangles, they're triangles that have the same angle, so they're the same shape, they look the same, even though the sizes could be different. And that's congruence is the same as. What I say is the same as what I really mean. What I do is the same as what I said I should do from a principled perspective. That is, I'm honest, what I, I tell you the truth. All right? So what you're hearing is the same as what I really believe. And, um, and, and when, when congruence is missing in an organization, when people feel that they're not getting uh, the right answers or that they're, they're being misled uh, or senior managers are saying one thing and doing another, um, preaching the values but not operating by them themselves, um, trust goes down because congruence is broken. All right? Openness is the second element. That's, um, and these are not any order of importance, just the second one I deal with normally is openness. And that's... Um, being open to hearing what other people have got to say as well as being open and speaking up with what you have to say, uh, sharing your thoughts and opinions and feelings with others, but listening to their thoughts and feelings and opinions. So when openness is lacking in an organization, people don't know what's going on. They tend to be hidden agendas. They tend to be secrets. Uh, rumors start, uh, and, and trust can really break down. People really need to know how they're performing. They need to know how the organization is performing. They need to know what's going on. Yeah, especially now. <laughs> especially now, yeah, especially now. And um, the third element is acceptance, and this is the, the least uh, obvious uh, to, to a lot of people. Um, acceptance means um, that I accept people for who they are. I respect them for who they are. I treat people with respect and dignity. I, I don't see myself as superior to you. Uh, we, we're people. We're on the same level, and I accept you uh, as much as I accept myself. And um, but I, I, I also also need to you give recognition to let people know that I I really respect what you're doing. And uh, so it's respecting who you are, but also respecting what you're doing and giving recognition, and positive feedback, uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. Respect really creates a climate uh, in a relationship where it's easier to be more open and congruent. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very hard to be, um, to be really be congruent and tell the truth to somebody if, if it's not popular news, uh, if you think you're going to get shot for it. Right. Uh, or, or you're going to get, um, you know, it's, 
it's it's a crime. Speaking up is a crime in some organisations. Right? Like they they sack the whistleblowers, for example. Yes. You know, I think that's the most despicable thing that that's happening still today. Mm-hmm. Um, people speak up about things that are absolutely wrong and and and, and unjust or illegal, and then they they get fired. Mm-hmm. Right. So. If, if there's no high, no level of acceptance, there's no element of acceptance in an organisation. Uh, people aren't treated with respect. Then trust dives. And, and lastly, the most obvious element is reliability. Uh, people doing what they say they'll do. People doing what's expected of them. People delivering what they're supposed to deliver as part of their, their job responsibilities. And um, but it's 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 beyond that. Um, reliability. The people that are most reliable. And if you think about this, the people you know who are most reliable are people who give you their best shot every time. Right. It's not just a matter of doing the job, it's doing it to the best of my ability. Uh, seeking excellence uh, is, is an important part of reliability. And so um, when, uh, when I was talking to Larry, um, I said, so now looking at these four elements of trust, uh, which two have you been most focused on in terms of, of um or senior leadership team. He said, well, obviously, reliability and, and, uh, and congruence. He said, we've got to run an honest, ethical organisation, mm-hmm. and we have, and, um, and, and we've got to be reliable, and especially to our shareholders, right? And um, yes, we've got to be reliable to the customers as well, but, you know, we've got to deliver results. We've got to run a profitable organisation, which is why we had to, to lay off some people. So, okay, now think about it from the perspective of your employees. Mm-hmm. What are they going to judge you by in terms of what they see as being a trustworthy leadership team. Well, yes, they want you to be honest and ethical, and yes, they want you to run a successful organisation, but for them personally to feel like they can trust you, they need to know what's going on. Right. They need more openness and transparency. Um, they need to know that you respect them and, uh, and that you value them. And then when you lay off people and you don't provide any, um, any kind of... Um, uh, one of the coaching, counselling, uh, or some program to help employees to deal with that, you know, to see their, their co-workers go and it's just bang, they're gone and it's just business as usual and there's no emotion about it. There's no, it's almost like the senior management team doesn't care about people. All right. So yes, we have to lay off people from time to time, um, but you can do it humanely and, uh, and, and also make sure that you build and maintain the relationships with the people that you've still got. Yeah. So that's, um, you know, that was a, a, a good insight for me to, to realise um, through that conversation that it's true in most organisations, I think, senior managers or management generally focuses on congruence and reliability and thinks they're building trust and, and they forget about acceptance and openness and uh, we need all four. I certainly agree. To be really building trust. I agree, and I, I love the model. It's it's really powerful. Um, you have a, a really disturbing comment in your book on page 69 where you say that in a low-trust workplace, employees will resist change even when it benefits them. Can you provide an example and, and explain uh, why this happens? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, see, if, if employees don't trust management, then they're going to be suspicious of anything that they do. And uh, I had a client that I worked with for a number of years in Australia, um, and and um, they had uh, decided to put in a um, employee uh, bonus scheme, mm-hmm. and and uh, they wanted to change the compensation arrangements and and uh, change a few other things, and and then but it, but include this uh, 
percentage of uh, profit that would go to the employees as a bonus. And um, so the the employees were asked that they formed a, like a little uh, group of them came together to form a task team to discuss it, and they went out to the employees and got feedback from the employees, came back, and then they rejected it. So they rejected the opportunity to get a bonus, and the reason given was that um, we just don't trust you. There's, there's got to be some ulterior motive because you never do anything for us. <laughs> Um, that hasn't got something attached to it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it wasn't until I'd been working with them, in fact, for um, uh, over a year that I discovered that in the factory, um, there's a packaging company out in the, mm-hmm. in the back, they had all these uh, cameras, uh, video cameras, trained on the employees. Oh, no. Watching them at work. Right. Now, I... Um, I don't believe that they were still using them at that particular point in time, but they were put in because one of their clients uh, had uh, highly sensitive um, stuff that they were getting packaged, and mm-hmm. they uh, had said, you, only, you won't get the job unless uh, we have the video cameras in place and they're monitored, so we can check your employees aren't stealing the stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, so they put them in some two or three years earlier, but, um, uh, and I don't think they did the work for the client anymore, but they didn't take them down. And they were, they were brought down the next day because they realised that was part of the issue. Was mm-hmm. uh, that the employees thought that you're still you're still watching us, you know? Yeah. How can we trust you? My my favourite chapter in in your book is chapter eleven, uh, where you discuss the power of purpose. Can you discuss the implications for leaders when describing outputs in terms of goals or activities versus purpose? I think this is a, probably a pretty common problem in the workplace today. Yeah, it is. Um, there's still a lot of organizations very much focused on the job description and, and the what has to be done um, and, uh, and, and and measuring output in terms of goals, measuring the sales uh, and the uh, customer satisfaction figures and retention, all, you know, those kinds of numbers. Um, and, and what happens is we end up focusing the employees on the activities they have to do. Uh, you know, like the flight attendant uh, who comes down the aisle and does the, you know, catering. Thing. Well, we wouldn't call it catering anymore, but they bring the drinks and the and the snacks things through, and and, and they just go through the motions. Um, it's because it's an activity, right? right? Uh, versus the flight attendant that brings it through and and, and uh, they're smiling and they're attentive and. And, uh, you know, can I help you with anything? And they're coming back around and they're checking if you need anything and checking if you want blankets or pillows and, you know, whatever. And not that they do much of that in coach anymore, but, um, you know, it really, it's about do I see the, am I focused on the purpose of my job or am I focused on the activities I have to perform, mm-hmm. right? And if I'm focused on the activities uh, and the dealing with people becomes an activity, and that's when they smile, and, and but it, it, it looks, you know, um, doesn't look genuine, or, or it's, you know, have, that, have a nice day, have a nice day, you know, or they say the same thing to everybody getting on or off the plane, and and whereas the flight attendant that's aware that, you know, the purpose of my job is not only to help us get the passengers to where we've got to go safely, uh, it's to create some comfort and also hopefully provide some enjoyment that you'll actually enjoy flying with us because you're so delighted with the service that I've delivered you uh, that you want to keep flying with us and you'll tell friends and family that we're a great airline. I mean, that's why Southwest Airlines is so successful. Yeah. Because they deliver value, uh, not just in the actual getting from point A to point B. Well, they deliver value there too, but 
they deliver value in the experience that you have when you fly with them. And and so, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people who've, who've switched because they're spreading their, their tentacles more and more sitting mm-hmm. across the states too. Yeah, good. And, and it's really, if you think about it, the purpose of every organization is to deliver value. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's government agency, hospital, manufacturing, uh, every organization is created to deliver something of value. If if it didn't deliver anything of value, it would go away. I mean, if a government agency didn't deliver any service of any value, they'd shut it down, mm-hmm. right? And, and so um, we've got to remember that that's why the organization exists. That's the real purpose of the organization, not the returns to shareholders. Right. Now, the returns to shareholders are what we what we get as a result of delivering the purpose the best we can. The yep. more value we deliver, uh, the more people will come for the value. The more people will pay for the value. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you go to this particular restaurant and pay more than the one across the street and drive five miles out of your road? Because they deliver value. You pay more, but you get more value. It's great food, great service, great ambiance, uh, and, and I just love going there. Right? And that restaurant's going to be very successful as long as it keeps delivering that value. And so, you know, that's the same with every organization. And a lot of leaders have completely lost sight of the fact that we're here to deliver value. Now, the whole, uh, these the credit swaps that uh, they dreamt up, um, you know, that was designed to deliver value to the people inside the organization to make lots of money. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was designed to deliver any value to people, the people who are actually um, borrowing the money or, or um, getting into homes they couldn't afford and stuff like that. Uh, so we've, we've lost sight of, of, of why we exist right. uh, at, at the head of organizations. And, and it's time that we got back to basics and said, okay, why does my organization exist? And how do I help everyone in the organization understand uh, the contribution they make to the value we deliver on the front line? Now, the customer service people need to be clear on the purpose of their role, not just what to do, what to say. Um, you know, you hear the scripts that some people read over the phones when they call or something, you know, or you call in. It's, it's just appalling. Yeah. It's just so task activity driven. Right. You're not thinking about why am I talking to this customer or potential customer? Exactly. How can I help them? How can our products help them make the world a better place for them? And, and, and then people who support them, the people who have internal customers, they focus on the purpose of what they do and how what they do to, to contributes to the value that's delivered to the customer. So I, I, my, my goal is to get everyone from the, from the CEO down to the, to the front line very clear on how we all contribute to the value that the customer experiences. Yeah, I think it's great. How can we create a great company? Yeah, I think it's great advice and, and uh, absolutely what we all need to do. I think so many leaders have the, the cart before the horse and uh, yes. they're not focusing on what they're really about. Um, I'd like to conclude our, our time with you today, Keith, um, with your six guiding principles. I know these have been so important to you in your work. And you talk about these in the final chapter of the book. I was wondering if you might be able to give us a high-level overview of these as we conclude our time with you today. Yeah, sure. And, and, and I think, again, this is something I got from Ralph Colby. Um, and that's uh, been a part of my life ever since. But the truth about myself will set me free is the first principle. And, and, and that was a big aha for me, too, because when I first saw the other director self-directed model, I was still rebelling against my parents at the age of 30. Mm. And, and it was a huge wake-up call for me. And, 
and that I needed to just take charge of my life and start doing what I wanted to do. And, and only then did I really start to have a good relationship with my father. And, and so I think that's an important starting point is um, I've got to be open to hearing feedback about myself and, and um, being willing to listen to what other people are telling me. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have to believe everything, but I need to find the truth. And then I'm free to change it. I have created myself uh, as a second one. Uh, I am a result of every decision, every thought, every action, um, every belief uh, that I've had in my whole life has resulted in me being where I am today. Um, No one else has created me. My parents didn't create me. Uh, Yes, they brought me into the world, uh, but um, it's my thought processes and, and, and the decisions I've made in my life that's ended up me being where I am today. And so I need to take responsibility for that, which is principle number three. I am responsible for myself and because um, I have created myself. And that means I'm not responsible for anyone else. I'm not responsible for my children or for my employees, but I sure am responsible to them. And I'm responsible to them to be the best that I can be, the best parent I can be, the best leader I can be, to create the best environment and give them the education that they need to make the right choices for them. But they've got to make the choices. Mm-hmm. So we can only be responsible for ourselves. The fourth is the past does not need to control me. Um, sometimes we, we, we think that, you know, if only that hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we think the past controls us, then we can't change. We're stuck. Right. And, and we're not stuck. We always have choices. We can always move forward. Number five is there's nothing to be afraid of. And... Um, the first thing that pops into most people's mind then is, well, what about this and what about that? Fear is what holds us back from moving forward. And, and there's a lot of fear in the, in the economy, in the environment today, uh, in the world today, about the future. And, and um, I know it, it seems like a crazy principle to be hanging on to, and I'm, I'm wondering myself, can I really stick with this? Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if I'm afraid of, of doing things, if I'm afraid of moving forward uh, with my business, with my life, with my family... Uh, then I hold back. If I'm afraid of saying something, um, I hold back. Yeah. And, and then um, not only do I miss out, other people miss out. And the last one is the answers are within me. We know inside ourselves what, what we need to do, what's right for us. Um, when we hear something, we know by our gut feeling uh, whether that's right for us or not. And uh, we need to listen to the feelings that we have because uh, they're our guidance mechanism that, um, that helps us to be the best that we can be. Those are so wonderful, and and a few of them, I think, need to be in big, bold letters, and I need to carry them around and read them (laughs) daily. (laughs) Uh, uh, But in any event, I really appreciate you sharing them with us, and and I really thank you, Keith, for your your excellent work and this uh, great resource that you've written to help build uh, employee engagement and passion in workplaces. It's really been great to have this time with you today, and I certainly encourage everyone that's that's joined us today and, and those that will listen afterwards to purchase uh, your wonderful book. So to get a copy of Engagement is Not Enough, You Need Passion in Employees to Achieve Your Dreams, um, I'd encourage you to visit www.engagementisnotenough.com. And uh, following our interview today, uh, I want to remind you that you are invited to join uh, in this conversation on employee engagement by joining the group on LinkedIn, which is called Bookends the Discussion. Uh, 
And here you can pose questions for Keith, who will be joining us in this discussion along with your colleagues and peers. You'll also find a link to the recording of today's interview once we post it there, which um, generally is pretty quickly, uh, that you can share with others or you can re-listen to yourself. Be sure to invite your friends to join this group. In May of 2009, my guest will be Julie Gebauer, who has authored the book Closing the Engagement Gap. And we have a full year planned of employee engagement authors uh, will be featuring Lee Collins engaging the heart and minds of all your employees in June, and Michael Lee Stollard's fired up or burned out in July. So to be sure that you are always in the know about Bookends events, go to teamapproach.com and sign up for the Bookends notifications under the free stuff button on our website today. And so once again, Keith, I really appreciated having this time with you and just really want to thank you for all of the great work that you do and certainly for your book and for sharing it with us today. Well, thank you, Susan. I really appreciated this opportunity and uh, enjoyed uh, having this conversation with you. It was great. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks again. Thanks, Susan. Bye-bye.